Today we're going to wrap up Malachi. So for those of you who were not here last week, we started Malachi last week. We're finishing it this week. And um, a couple of reasons for that. First of all, it's a short book. Um, and it really, uh, I, don't, I don't really want to draw it out a whole lot more than I need to. Secondly, I'm going to be out for a while, and I think it's probably good to just wrap it up now than to come back after a month to try and remember it all. Even though I know you're all remembering everything I say, literally. Uh, but what we're going to do today is go through it. And so first, maybe just a quick wrap-up of what we talked about last week. Real quick kind of overview of what Malachi is. Malachi is the last authoritative canonical book of the Old Testament. And so this is what scholars, primarily Hebrew and Christian scholars uh, for thousands of years have kind of identified as kind of the last authoritative canonical book written or prophecy written from God to his people um, uh, before the coming of Christ. What's our timeline here? Remember, this is our timeline going back in time. So 1 BC, as we go to the left, that's further back in time. So the numbers get bigger until you get all the way back here. Key dates, 586 BC is the date that Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. And this is a turning point in Jewish history. The temple and Jerusalem are destroyed, okay? Uh, <clears throat> Why is that important? Because the temple worship and the center of Jerusalem being the, the king's city, and the king was deposed, there was no longer a king of Israel after that, are all huge impacts to the Israeli community who relied on all of those things. And the Jews who were left, who weren't killed, were taken back to Babylon, so they lost their home. So basically everything that seemed to be promised to the Jews in the Old Testament was taken away from them. In 538, the Persians take over from the Babylonians, and the Jews are allowed to return to their homeland. Here is Israel, which we call Syrio-Palestine, because that's the name of the region given to it essentially by the Romans, which today is, is encompassing the modern-day country of Israel, and in the past encompassed the kingdom of Israel, and eventually the divided kingdom of Judah in Israel. Okay? Now, after the people are deported, and they leave, and then they come back, they come back, and resettle in this region that's then called Judea after the name of the Jews, but it is a much smaller region. It is, um, it is not autonomous. It is ruled by the Persians and they have a governor, okay? So the people come back, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed, there is no temple, and the people decide that they want to rebuild their society. The whole point of Malachi, in which Malachi is written, is in this setting. The land has been taken from them, the people have been ruined, Jerusalem is starting to be rebuilt. By 515, the people have rebuilt the temple. But I think it's really important to remember and know that this rebuilt temple is a shadow of its former glory. What was Solomon's temple, a magnificent temple built probably in the 10th century BC, was completely smashed. All of the gold and bronze and silver that were a part of that temple were uh, taken away to Babylon. The ark was probably taken away to Babylon at that time if it wasn't hidden away and somewhere to be saved. I don't think it, I don't think it exists anymore. And so the people decide to rebuild, but they rebuild their temple, but they're poor. Judea is uneducated now. There's no education. There's no money. And so the temple that they rebuild is essentially a shack. And this has a huge impact on the people. 
So now we have the Jews living now in the fifth century, so in the 400s BC, in a shadow of their former glory. It is in that setting that Malachi is written. Now, what is happening in Malachi is the following. There is a lot of corruption, this excitement of the Jews when they came back into Judea. We're going to rebuild, and we're going to have a king again, and we're going to have money, and we're going to have education, and we're going to be free, and we're going to have security, and we're going to have our own army again, and soon we're going to take over the Gentiles, and we're going to crush them for what they did to us. None of that happens. None of that happens. There's a lot of excitement in the 6th century. A lot of people are very excited about this. The problem is 100 years go by. Now, I don't know about you. But if I'm having a bad week, it only takes a week for me to be discouraged. <laughs> I had a rough week this week. And what ends up happening is it's very easy for a human being to become discouraged. Now, what happens if that week lasts for 100 years? My children experience it. Their children experience it. Their children experience it. It starts to feel like maybe things are not going to be okay. Maybe things are not going to be all right. And God isn't going to give us what he promised. There's a lot of promises in this Old Testament, folks which God says you'll have land and you'll have prosperity and you'll have security and you'll have a Davidic king on the throne and none of that has happened. Somewhere around 430 BC, the people start to fall away. They start to go, maybe not idol worship. And again, this is actually kind of an amazing thing. The reason that they went into captivity because they served other gods through Baal worship and Asherah worship and that sort of thing, largely disappears from Judea. The people who return to this region, and again, only 50,000 Jews return. Hundreds of thousands of Jews probably remain in Persia and stay there and never come back. But the people who do come back tend to be orthodox. They tend to be monotheistic believers in Yahweh and only Yahweh. Because of that, they have a strong sense of what they should be doing. But here's the problem. After 100 years of essentially ruin, the priests start to fall away the people start to fall away. There starts to be corruption. There's corruption in temple worship. The temple worship is not pure. Um, the people are not pure. And they start to sin. And they start to stop believing in the promises of God. Okay? <clears throat> that is the setting which Malachi was written. Malachi is a title added later. All of the titles of the Old and New Testament books and letters were added later. But Malachi means messenger. Maybe the title of the person who wrote it may not. Today we're going to read. Last week we read chapter 1, kind of a setting. Now we're going to read chapter 2. So I would like, please, a volunteer to read chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. Who would like to read that for me? Oh, sorry, what did you say? What do we want to read? Chapter 2 of Malachi, verses 1 to 16. You're actually not going to go all the way to the end, just 1 to 16. Okay. And now, you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen, and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not resolved to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him this call for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. 
True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all of the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob. And though he brings an offering to the Lord, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Excellent. Thank you, Angela. What are the questions I ask in this class? Who wrote it? Who wrote it? And uh, what I mean by that is what kind of person? Yeah. What else? The audience. Who is the audience? And again, same thing. Kind of people. Third? When? When is baked into this. That's, that's part of this. What's happening? Why? Yeah. Why? why? And it's all right. You're all right. And I'll start with why. Why was it written? And it includes the when. It includes everything. Yeah. When, how, you know, <laughs> what, et cetera, et cetera. What was so, what was going on in the community that was so important that this person decided to write about this as, and again, people don't write things and then just put them in a, in a safe. Something like this would be written and then verbally shared with the community probably many, many, many times on street corners, probably at the temple courts and that sort of thing. I'm going to add a fourth one here, which is the implied fourth one that I ask every week, but I want it to be part of kind of your memorization here. How can you apply this to your life? Probably the most important question we ask. today or to us. Now, we all just went through this fairly short passage. You tell me. You're going to teach me today. Who is the author of this passage? And again, I'm not looking for a name. A prophet. A prophet. Yes. And what do you mean by prophet for those who might not know that word? It's a me messenger of God. Perfect. This is it. <laughs> this is it. 
Is that the same word as the Malachi then? The um, Malachi is messenger in Hebrew. Okay, what is it? Is uh, it prophet Hebrew? is a little different. Okay. Prophet is different. So the Greek word is that the um, one for angels? Yeah. So messenger would be uh, angelos. Okay. And a prophet would be prophetes. So they're different. And an angel is a messenger too. How is that? Yes. Yeah. There are many kinds of messenger. That's what it's different kind of messenger. A messenger is not inclusive of just one kind of thing. What's the definition of prophet then? Prophet is again. Someone, and, and we talked about this last week because actually in Malachi 1 there was this word oracle. Oracle is either a person or a message that comes from God that is delivered through an intermediary on earth. So essentially, an oracler and a prophet are synonymous. A prophet takes a message from God and communicates that out to the people. And that's what's happening here. What kind of person, their prophet, what do they care about? What are the kinds of things this person cares about? Usually the people. Cares about the community. <laughs> they wouldn't say this stuff if he didn't care. You know, there's this kind of thing, you know. Why do, we, why, do, why do the leaders of the church sacrifice? Why do we spend nights and weekends? I was up at five this morning prepping this lesson. Why do we do this? I'm not trying to get a gold star or anything. It ain't easy. Why do we uh, send 100 emails to each other during the week about you know, all the issues that we need to fix? And why do we ha you know, kind of feel sometimes like it's a battle? Because we care. Because we care. This person cares. If you've ever read Ezekiel, how many people have read the book of Ezekiel? <laughs> it's kind of scary in a way. It is one of my favorite books of the whole Bible. You may just skip over it thinking there's this huge thing and I don't know what it means. Ezekiel embodies the kind of person that is going to stick his neck out and say what truth is. Because he cares. He wants there to be change. What other kind of person is this? Well, Jonah didn't care about this. Uh, at first. Yeah. Well, he wasn't happy about doing it. No. I mean, uh, I guess it's all of that. But, like, he loves yeah. God. He wants people yes. to return or hear the message. God and, and, and sowing love God yeah I, I would add to that a little bit of you know he loves righteousness to, yeah. to a certain degree I'd say he cares about what's right and wrong yeah. and this is another thing it's very easy in our society to shut up when maybe public opinion is not on the side of righteousness because we don't want to stick our necks out this person obviously is saying some very harsh things there's some, some harsh language here and you better believe his best friends are hearing this some of them are probably guilty He's probably, again, um, probably not a priest, but he obviously knows priests. People don't like to hear bad news. They don't. And the first thing they're going to do is want to burn you, not repent. So what kind of audience is this person talking to? What are the issues going on here? They're not following God. Say it again. They're not following God. Isn't that in every book of the Bible? <laughs> I love you. Repeat. See, I literally say nothing new every week. Bless your hearts for coming. Bless your hearts. I say the same thing every week. Not following God. That's right. Not being obedient. Well, it seems like it's a generational, generational thing. It's just the one generation does, the next one does, and, yep. yeah. and back and forth. And, yeah. and it, this applies to us right now as a nation. Yeah. Yep. 
Oh, I'm sorry about jumping ahead. I love it. I'm not much for following the rules, so I'm fine with that. Okay. What else? What are the specific problems going on in the community? What did we read about in there? Disrespect. There we go. The the note at the side. My Bible has little side side notes, mm -hmm. and it notes that the entrails of the sacrifice were supposed to be taken out yep. before the sacrifice was made, and the priests weren't yep. doing that in the appropriate way. Yep. Write the why. It's not being obedient. Don't the uh, doesn't the people look to the priest for guidance and that's it leadership that's it and to be guides they you know um, first Timothy Titus um, several passages in the New Testament make it clear what an elder should be above reproach an elder should be above reproach when you see an elder you should see I don't even, I shouldn't have to wear a medal that says elder. That's a man that's following God, and he cares about God, and he cares about righteousness. Priests are leaders. They're teachers. Yeah, and they need to get their act together. Could what else is judges? going on here? Yeah. Could they be judges? They are judges of their own community or their own flock. Yes. In the case of priests of Israel, who are they judges of? Who's the flock? King. Part of it. Who's the flock of the priests of Israel? Israelis. You mean Jews? Just Jews? All of them. All the Jews. Who is the flock of a Christian elder? The local church. church. The church, the Christians who call themselves the church. So there's a little bit of a difference there. Yes, we are called to judge in a way, more of a discerning judgment um, for the people that we consider in our flock. That's a separate issue. What else? Is, are the priests the only ones on the hook here? Who else is on the hook here? Well, the nation of Israel. Yeah. The leaders. Uh, so. the, even the common people, because yes. I assume that they're, they're the ones that are marrying yeah. people they're not supposed to. Yep. Common folk. People who identify as, and I'm going to say this, Israelites. There's a lot of terms. I'm just going to say identify as sons of Abraham. It's probably a, a good way to say that. It's everyone. Specifically who? What's a, you know, when we talk about here verses like, um, like uh, 14, 14 and 15, 16. Who is who is God or God? God through the prophet speaking to in those verses. The men. Men who what? 
divorce their wife? Yes. Married couples. This is very specific. And specifically, yes, in general, in Israel, amongst the Israel community in the 6th and 5th centuries BC, women could get divorced. It was very rare. It was primarily men. But it's for both. It's for people to stay married. But specifically, um, this is directed towards people who want to divorce each other or have divorced each other. So here, this is, this is how you do Bible study, right? This is how we do it. Before we go to three and four, how do we apply this to today? What, what application do we have? Is this just a bunch of dusty material for a bunch of long dead folks? I just saw the mummy the other day with my kids. I showed them the mummy, Brendan Fraser from like the 90s. <laughs> Oof. Uh, yeah, it's not a bunch of dusty old dead people that this matters, right? This is this is today. How do we apply this? Get back to the basics. Gosh, how important is that? Get I'm sorry if you see my rump a lot in this class. You don't have to look back to basics. <laughs> um, what would you define as the basics there, Steve? Um, Dan? I said Steve because Steve just walked in. Dan. <laughs> Still catching up. It is the simplicity of the gospel for us. Which is what? Uh, Jesus is our Lord and Savior. He died for our sins, gives us new life. Excellent. And He loves us. And what does that mean for you? Is that just something I just need to acknowledge? <laughs> no, it's hope. Obey God and leave all the consequences to Him. Gosh, Lorna says it with such purity. Do it. You did great. Thank you. <laughs> you did great. You did great. You know, um, it was said once that the Holy Spirit is the third person in any marriage. That if you get married, even if you don't get married in a Christian church, marriage for pagans and atheists too is a covenant that God established between one man and one woman on this earth to help to show us what a covenant relationship is. And that covenant relationship is not just with another person, because that tends to be an imperfect model. It tends to be an example of what a covenant relationship should be between you and God. Marriage involves intimacy. It involves showing what you got. <laughs> It involves being honest. It involves compromise. It involves promises made that are expected to be honored and fulfilled. And because God expects marriage to help us as human beings understand a covenant relationship with him, he gets very upset when we break that covenant. Now, this is not a lecture about how dare you get divorced. I'm not gonna judge you. you I am a child of divorce. Plenty of people in this church and other places have gotten divorced. It happens. I'm not letting you off the hook because it's not my hook to let you off of. God's not letting you off the hook in a way. But the point is not are you on or off the hook. The point is why does it matter? The whole point here is why is the faithfulness of the priest important? Because the priest is an example or model 
of a a covenant relationship between God and man. Why does faithfulness of marriage matter? Because a marriage is a model of a covenant relationship between God and man. Why does the faithfulness of the Israelites matter? Because, broken record, the, the relationship between the Israelites and God is a covenant relationship, and that's a model. So I think the author of Malachi is trying to just make some very basic statements here. We honor God and understand our covenant relationship with our Creator through relationships that we form on this earth. And they are examples of that with God. Questions or comments? Disagree? Because you can disagree. That's why it's important that the uh, leaders of the church setting the example for the flock in the church, just like they had to do back then, because you know, leaders have issues. They have they can stumble and so on. But that's where we have the church to come alongside and help each other. Love it. Let's move on, and we're actually going to finish it out here. Actually, let's just do let's just do through three, and then we'll finish four in a minute. Um, let's read two verses seventeen all the way through three eighteen. Who would like to do that for me? Thank you. I can find seventeen. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him? You ask by saying. All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold, like silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come and put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppose the widows and the fatherless, who deprive foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors you have turned away from my decree and have not kept them return to me and i will return to you says the lord almighty but you ask how are we to return will a mere mortal rob god yet you rob me but you ask how are we robbing you in tithes and offerings you are under a curse your whole nation because you are robbing me Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not room enough to store it. 
I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and vines in your fields, will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. But you have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put the Lord to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning all those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares a son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked and between those who serve God and those who do not. Excellent. Thank you, Mary. What are the issues that are happening in chapter 3? People are tithing. And for those of us who don't know what that, that term means, what is tithing? Giving ten per, the first 10% of your earnings or crop, if you will. Mm -hmm. To who? To God. Sorry. To God. Excellent. By the people not doing that, they were forcing the Levites to go get other sources of income and jobs. Wow. Now, this is insightful. What happens when we are, and, and let me just back up by tithing and giving that first part of your earnings to God, God considers that an act of faith. This is exactly it. This is exactly it, faithfulness. God says, be faithful, step out in faith, and I will make sure you never have anything you ever need again. You will always have exactly what you need. Maybe not what you want, but what you need. Now, Steve brings up an excellent point, which I hadn't thought about talking about, but what happens when we are not faithful? Tell me. And what's going on in this, in, in this society, obviously? You don't trust God to do the things that you need to do. So what's happening? People are not tithing, meaning they are not giving their first fruits to God. So what is the result that we can well, extract? They're not being blessed. They are not being blessed. The community is not being blessed. And in this case, you know, much is made of what blessed means. In Greek, it means happy. <laughs> I know that rubs people the wrong way. But blessed also means from a, a sense of charity that you have what you need. What does being blessed mean in this specific case? From God? Yeah. What are they lacking? And it's a very basic answer. Nothing. Well, if they're not tithing, the oh. community is not being blessed, so what do they not have? Food or? Money, food, anything. 
they, they are not being blessed. They, there is poverty. There is um, there's injustice because these widows and orphans are going hungry. That's exactly it. And then what Steve was saying here, this is so important, that because this is happening, it is it is actually dividing the the religious rulers, religious to be forced to make up for it. Now, very little is made of the fact the Apostle Paul was not a full-time apostle. In fact, he made a point in, in some of his letters of saying, I don't want to rely on your money and your charity. I'm going to work for what I have because I don't want it to even appear as if I am just one of these traveling fools who all I'm trying to do is get money from people and beg. He didn't want that. He wanted to work, so he was a tent maker. He had a day job. I know that's weird to say. The Apostle Paul had a day job, and thank God, look how much he wrote. Well, that's why he had to go to jail, so he could sit down and write. I, I love this, man. I love this. There might be some truth to that, too. I love this. That's what you needed. Hey, he's like, oh, I don't have to make tents today. <laughs> well, guess what? The Levites, if they're not, I mean, if they're busy working, they're not doing things in the temple and doing the other things that you'd expect the Levites to be able to do and have time for. Duties not happening. What is... <laughs> and, and, the, and, and yes, community is not being blessed, which means that they have poverty, injustice, insecurity, um, so people don't have anything. That leads to, now the religious rulers have to go out and are forced to make up for it. So they're going and probably working the land, which they shouldn't have to be doing. Look, we have these roles for a reason. I have people on my team that I pay a lot of money in some cases to do certain things. Highly educated people with advanced degrees in science and technology. The last thing I want to be paying them all this money to go do is to put coal in a furnace so they can be warm enough to actually sit there and do their job, okay? Or pedal a bike to power their computer so they can actually do computer stuff. Why would I do that? That makes no sense, why? Because they're gonna spend all of their time just trying to get the basics, go out and get food, go out and get heat. By the end of the day, there's no time left to actually do their job. There was no time left for these priests to do their job. This is so good, Steve, and I'm so glad you mentioned this. Now, we have these religious duties not happening. What happens when there is now a vacuum of leadership in the religious community? People fall away. They're not uh, being well, led also, to, to God. <laughs> well, false priests show up. Religious show up. activity becomes corrupted. It kind of seems like people are discouraged because they <clears throat> see that people who are not following God are doing just as good as people who are because um, it says angry or better yeah and it's kind of like it is today yeah now what is what happens now this is very cynical I wrote this in my Bible like three times this is very cynical what is God's response to this he frowns God is not pleased <laughs> And God is not pleased. So then guess what happens? Then it's kind of a cycle again, right? Well, if God's not pleased, <laughs> he's not going to bless you. 
I mean, he's going to do things that refine you. And we talked about this last week, which is and, and the week before, actually, why we suffer. There's two, uh, two mentions in here about the, the refining that God will do, either during this religious period or at the end times. Two examples. One is refinement through fire. Now, because I think most of us are not metallurgists, <laughs> I had to look this one up. Um, we're not blacksmiths. Turns out that when you mine ore out of the earth, guess what? Maybe this isn't a surprise. You don't just get high-grade steel out of the earth. Right? What you get is a whole bunch of rock that has a very, very little of what you want and a whole bunch of crap you don't want. So the process to take that, ref- that ore and refine it is actually very intensive. It is a lot of work. And guess what? It generates a lot of heat. The only way that metallurgists can extract the metal they want from a rock is to dump it into a giant vat and heat that vat to thousands of degrees. What ends up happening? This substance called dross, and again, this is out of my league, so if I mess this up, I'm sorry. The, the, the thick crap that you don't want, silicates and carbonates and many eights, I don't even know, all the different things that are in rock, float to the top and they scrape it off. And this process goes over and over. Now, every time they heat it up and they scrape off the dross off the top, what you've got left in the liquid is a little more pure in whatever you're trying to get out of it, right? And you add certain chemicals and you heat it to certain temperatures, etc. This process does not happen once. It is over and over and over. And if you've ever seen like how it works for gold, the process of making 24 karat pure gold, <laughs> the mountains of earth that are extracted and the the, the, the gigawatt hours of energy that are expended to get an ounce of gold is absolutely startling. The heat, the pressure, the temperature, the effort is a process to refine something to make it pure. I don't think it's a mistake that this author talks about metallurgy because most of his audience probably are workers that do this kind of thing. The other people who are doing this is people washing clothes. Again, this is probably an indication this wasn't just meant for men. Women in antiquity did a lot of drudgery. It's not a sexist statement, it's the truth. It happened in a lot of primitive cultures. The the, the men go off to hunt and gather and do metallurgy and the women are expected to take care of the home and do the work, like cleaning. If you have to clean cloth and you had very dirty cloth, well there there wasn't all temperature in the sixth century BC. And there wasn't uh, fancy uh, you know, whirlpool washing machines that did you know, the hot cold cycle and, and this and that. You had to literally mine lye out of the earth, which is basically like sodium hydroxide or calcium hydroxide. This is like um, very harsh chemicals. You would put the cloth in it, you would put these very harsh chemicals in it, and then you would beat the heck out of it. Now. I have some very soft clothes on right now, and I'm very thankful for that. I have dryer sheets, and I have modern technology. Can you just imagine a flax or wool cloth cloak that you have to put sodium hydroxide, you have to beat the crap out of it, and then once you've scrubbed it with rocks or other metals, you take it and you put it on a rock in the sun, and you beat it with more sticks. This sounds horrible. But why? Because that was the only way people of the 6th century BC could get clean clothes, to make them really clean. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. Why is this author 
using those two very vivid analogies here for purification. And who is being purified? It's because neither way seems very fun for the thing being purified. There's no other way to say it. Purification. It ain't fun. Are we really talking about metal and cloth here? Who is the author really talking about? Us, the people. Us! People need purified. What is the process of purification? Are people being heated in a furnace to 2,000 degrees? Sometimes they wear, but not a lot. It's not really what we need. What does the process of purification really mean here? And there are no wrong answers. By the way, I took, when I got my master's degree in science teaching, he taught us something that's very hard to do, actually, as a teacher, to keep your mouth shut and wait until someone says something. But it's good because it makes you think. There are no wrong answers. And shout it out. I won't put your picture on the internet. I would say it starts with repentance. Okay. Well, verse 16 said, then those who feared the Lord. Uh, we have to learn how to fear the Lord and listen to him and be obedient to him. Fear the Lord. Let's go down that path in just a moment. Let's back up one step. What is the process that leads you to repentance? What are you going through? The refiner's fire. Which means Troubles. what? Troubles. Trouble! So this is, again, I say this, and I love to say this. Very little of the Bible is literal. Most of the Bible is conceptual. So when we say a refiner's fire, or beating a cloth with lye, we're not literally saying we're gonna go beat a cloth with lye. We're saying you're gonna have hard times. You are going to have people who hate you. You're gonna speak truth and they're gonna hate you. They're gonna think because you're speaking up, you're creating discord and thus you are not good. A lot of people who are not, how do I say this? New leaders or people who are not leaders have a false impression that good leaders don't rock the boat. They think they're all some kind of magic ambassador where everyone sings kumbaya and everyone gets along. Harmony is seen as the ultimate goal of leadership. That's not true at all. In fact, that's exactly the opposite of truth. Now, of course, there's ways to respectfully go about rocking the boat and, and bringing discord. Look, if everyone was singing kumbaya and everything was good, this is a book of discord. I don't know how else to say it. going to bring a sword. Uh, we're going to talk about the sayings gospel. Ah, that's good. Times, which are necessary. You're going to lose your job. People are going to hate you. People are going to say you suck. You might get sick. Your kids might get sick. You might get in a car accident and be crippled. You might die. You might lose your life. Guess what? Hard times are everywhere. But what is the author saying here? What are those hard times a sign of? Being refined. Yes. Trying to turn you to God. Sign of refinement by your creator who wants you to end, the, leave this world a much better person than you came into it. 
Now we'll talk about what the process is. When you say repentance, what does that mean for a layperson? You're, you're sorry for what you've been doing and you make a, a change. For actions. Um, metanoieo in, in Greek means to change your thinking. It doesn't mean you felt bad. How many politicians apologize for being caught? Yeah. <laughs> Not just politicians, everybody. Sorry for actions. Not just for being caught. How many times have you been pulled up? Well, I haven't been stopped very many times, but you know, the officer comes up. I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry, you caught me, sir, is really what you meant. You look too professional to, to be, I'm just saying. I get pulled over all the time. Uh, they see you and they're like, important member of the community, let him go. Uh, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord doesn't mean trembling all the time. What does fear the Lord mean? If you were to explain that to a layperson. Respect. Yeah, it's a healthy respect. That's it. If you showed up to your work one hour a week, didn't talk to anybody, slipped in, watched what was going on, but didn't participate, then slipped out, never talked to any of those people for the rest of the week, never actually put forth any effort or obedience into doing your job, how long are you going to keep employment? Not very long unless that was your job to do that. <laughs> <laughs> She's a smart girl. Let's say it's not your job. Why do we do that on Sunday? You think God of the universe is at the bottom of the list or the top? Well, I think if you're in this room, you've made a commitment to say, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I think if you show up to church, you're saying, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. Well, okay. Does that mean I'm going to give God the last Scraps. I tell my wife, I'm sorry. I get up in the morning, and I really kind of start working right away. I do my Bible study at 5. From then, I'm really kind of working the whole day. Start working at my real job about 7.30. Meetings all day. Crucial convers It's eight hours of crucial conversations a day. By, by 5 o'clock, I'm burned out. And I have to apologize to my wife because that's when she gets me. And I have to say, I am sorry, Laura. I'm giving you scraps, and it's all on me. Because by 5 o'clock, I'm burned out, and I've given my work everything, but I'm not giving her anything. And she gets the leftovers. Goodness gracious, I don't want God to get my leftovers. And that's tithing. Tithing isn't just you're writing a check for 10%. It means your first fruits of everything, your time, your effort, your love, your passion, your conviction, your, your spiritual gifts. Thank you for serving. Thank you. Thank you. That is a sign that you're giving it to God. So okay, I beat that, I've beat that cloth enough with lie here. Let's, uh, let's finish chapter four and kind of sum up and we'll, we'll see what you have to say about the whole thing. Chapter four, verse one, it's short, one to six. Who would like to read that? I can do it. Thank you, sir. Keep it moving. The Lord of heaven's armies says the day of judgment is coming, burning like a furnace. On that day, the arrogant and the wicked will be burned up like a straw. They will be consumed, roots, branches, and all. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go free, leaping with joy like calves let out to pasture. On the day when I act, you will tread upon the wicked as if they were dust under your feet, says the Lord of heaven's armies. 
Remember to obey the law of Moses, my servant, all the decrees and regulations that I gave him on Mount Sinai for all Israel. Look, I am spending, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. What is the day of the Lord? When he comes back. When he comes back, right? What's that mean? Takes to heaven. Takes us to heaven? So the righteous, maybe? Yeah. Get to in heaven, meaning a synonym for what? The new world, eternal life. Uh, I don't know what's the right word. <laughs> it's all right. They're all right. They're all right. What happens? Is that everybody? Some people will be happy and some won't because they'll be judged. I don't know how you could be a universalist. I'm sorry I'm on this thing about universalism. It's bullcrap. If you read the Bible, the entire Bible, not everyone goes to heaven. They don't. It's nowhere in the Bible. There's kumbaya, liberal view of Christianity today that every, all paths lead to God and everyone's going to heaven is wrong. Wrong, wrong. <laughs> and I'm sorry if you have to hear that and you don't like that. I have family that will not be in heaven. It sucks. I have friends who will not be in heaven. It sucks. But I have friends and family who will be in heaven. And I tell this to other people too. We all spend a lot of time worrying about who's going to heaven. <laughs> and I've been asked, Brian, do you think so-and-so is actually going to heaven? You know what my answer always is? I have no idea. You know who? There's one person on this planet. I am responsible for knowing whether that person is going to heaven or not. Guess who that is? This guy. It's a good thing we don't choose because if we don't like somebody... God loves them just as much as he does us. Yep. Don't you think? 100%. I agree. What do you guys think of Malachi? This is the last Malachi day, so it's short and sweet. What do you think? Is this a message that's relevant for today, or is it kind of stuffy and old and move on? She's so good. See, she, see it's softballs. I give yeah. you softballs. <laughs> yeah, you could apply it to today just as easily as back then. I have two action items for this class. I don't usually assign homework per se. I have two action items. The first one is I want you all, because you have decided to spend an hour of your life in Bible study every week, I want you to reward yourself for that. I want you to actually take what you've learned in here and apply it to your life because if you don't, you're just wasting your time. I mean, that's the honest truth. If it's just for FYI, you've kind of wasted your hour. Pay yourself for having committed an hour to God every week, at least, and hopefully it's more than that, to the study of the Word. I want you to go out and try and apply what you've learned to your life this week. So think about what I've written, think about your notes, think about what you thought. And it's simple, too. It doesn't have to be this big elaborate, I'm going to become the Pope, right? It just is, what is one simple thing I can do this week to, to, to be faithful to God? There's some pretty big ones in here that's good. You know, tithing, um, faithfulness, um, um, uh, you know, being faithful to God, being faithful to your community, being faithful to your spouse. 
That's the first thing I want you to do. There is another thing I want you to do here, and this is something I'm going to start to push a lot more. It's great that you're all coming. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There was, didn't we have someone else in here earlier? Tim. Tim. <laughs> How did I forget Tim? Nine people in here. There's 7.5 billion people that are not in here. Okay, I'm, I'm kind of being kind of hyperbole here. I want you to invite someone to this class. Because I have a feeling that most of the people you interact with every day don't know the word of God. They might come from there. I'm not going to lie to you. I think we've had, and this is not a condemnation, people who have been at Pathway for its 20-year history who don't know the word of God. Who slip in and slip out every week. I don't want them to be ghosts anymore. This is my engagement challenge to you. Let's figure out ways to make this class more engaging, okay? Invite someone to this class. Invite them to this class, but if, they are abs if they're busy on Sunday or they have no interest in coming here, then I want your homework assignment to be how can you get them engaged with the word? I have a huge number of resources I can give you, and actually I might just start bringing them every week. How can I get new disciples engaged in the Word of God. There's a, there's a thousand different ways to do that. There's study Bibles. There's study guides. There's online videos for people who don't want to read. <laughs> uh, there's apps on their phone if they don't want to read or they can't read. I have a million different ways I can help you get them engaged with the Word of God every day. So it doesn't necessarily have to be this class, but just start with this class. Try and invite someone to this class. And if they come once and they hate it, that's fine. I don't have to appeal to everyone. Um, but let's try and get them engaged somehow. What do you think? Is that fair? Yeah. yeah. I still can when I tried that. I asked this lady at the building that she'd like to go to worship Sunday, or to church Sunday, and uh, she said, don't preach to me. Uh -huh. And I didn't know pre that was preaching, but okay. And uh, she's just not me ever since. It's been about three years now. I've, she don't speak. Yep. I'm going to say this to you. You use the model of Jesus when you reach out, and I know it's a stretch, especially if you're an introvert, to ask people to either come to church or to the Bible study or what have you. I want you to think about what Jesus did. Jesus healed 10 lepers of leprosy. How many came back and thanked him for that? I don't want to say it's the same. You may ask 10 people, and they may all tell you to go climb a tree except for one. One out of 10. If you get one out of 10, I think you're exceeding expectations, quite honestly. Don't worry about striking out. Guess what? It's not your war. I know. I, it's I, God's I, war. I, I didn't. I, you know, I still yep. Well, no, I think this is what we think. I feel bad. But don't yeah. feel bad. It's not personal. Uh, All right. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you in four weeks.